Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by Heather Gate, Vice President of Digital Inclusion for Connected Nation, an organization that's been offering programs and initiatives to help bridge the digital divide in the U.S. since 2001. She and I discussed the work Connected Nation has been doing across the country, including its efforts in broadband mapping. We also get into the details of the federal government's $65 billion funding programs for broadband, how Connected Nation is working with states to prepare for that funding, and why she is not a fan of the phrase future-proof. Heather, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Nicole. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to get to talk to you today. Um, so to start off our conversation, I would love for you to give just a bit of background on Connected Nation and where your efforts and programs are active in the U.S. Okay. So Connected Nation is a national nonprofit that's dedicated to strengthening communities and improving lives through increased access, adoption, and use of broadband and related technologies and application. Last year, we were proud to celebrate our 20th anniversary of helping communities bridge the digital divide. In terms of what we do, our core competencies are around broadband mapping, verification and validation, community technology planning, um, helping communities, whether it's a state-level community or a county-level community, develop a, a broadband technology plan. We also help communities develop and implement programs that are designed to bridge the digital divide. There's a digital inclusion programming, whether it is device distribution, uh, digital skills training, and we also do some workforce uh, training and upskilling. We also do some research and policy work around broadband and uh, related applications. So as you can see, we believe in a adopting a comprehensive strategy to tackling the digital divide. You can't it's not just an infrastructure issue. It's also about adopting, making sure that once the infrastructure, which is the backbone, is there, that people are actually adopting and using these programs. And so over the years, um, we have helped states um, with broadband planning and have done state-level uh, uh, broadband mapping, resulting in us processing over 54 million broadband records spanning 42% of the U.S. landmass. That actually is 12 states and one territory. And in addition to that, we, as I said, we help with custom programs around whether it's digital inclusion programming. Last year, we had the pleasure of helping with distribution of 40,000 hotspots to at-risk kids across the country. And so... We do it all, and uh, we're we're really sort of uh, dedicated to solutions that really help to uh, 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 bridge the digital divide. It certainly does sound like you do it all. It sounds like you all have known uh, how to bridge the digital divide for a long time in ways that policymakers are kind of just catching up to um, with all of the these intersecting programs and and understanding uh, accessibility and affordability on top of, you know, putting uh, fiber and cable in, in the ground. So really exciting. And it sounds like you're very well placed uh, for this moment that we're in. Um, I want to come back to broadband mapping for a second because I think it's super interesting that you all have been involved in this for a while. And I'd love to 
understand the difference between um, the data that you have and what you've been able to produce for states and what's been available at the FCC. Of course, we all are aware that the FCC is going to be releasing a new map later this year, and everybody's very excited and anxious for it. But tell me a bit about the broadband maps that Connected Nation has produced. What data goes into those, and, and how have you worked with states on producing maps at the state level? Yeah. So thank you, Nicole, for that wonderful question. I think one thing we can all agree is that accurate and granular maps are very important because mm-hmm. they help to expose the gaps. Because we can't fi- if we can't identify it and define it, then we can't fix it. It's And it's not only important for the individual households, but it's also important for decision makers to really be efficient about how they deploy public resources to build out infrastructure. Now, here's the challenge. The biggest challenge that we've faced as a country over the last few years is that we've been relying on maps that we know to be inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And the way this happened was that around 2014, when um, the Department of Commerce under the NTIA agency uh, ran out of funding for broadband mapping, what happened was that the FCC started to collect this data using what we call Form 477. And the problem with the Form 477 that is that the data is self-reported by internet service providers, and they report it at census block level. And so what that means is that even if one household in a given census block has access to internet, then the whole census block is considered covered. And mm-hmm. what that means is that other 20 households are in a place where coverage is overstated. And this is particularly problematic for people that live in rural areas where mm-hmm. the census blocks can be very large. Now, as far as how does Connected Nation differentiate itself from that? What we do is we collect data directly from providers. And this is it is optional for for providers to participate within a given state. And for those providers that don't participate, we can collect that data using publicly available form 477. But what we do is we we do what we call as trust but verify. We actually have engineers that will go into the field and validate um, service coverage. In addition to that, we also do uh, street and road level granular uh, wireless service maps or propagation models for wireless services. And then once we've collected that data, we, we, and we also offer services free of charge to the slow, smaller providers that can't really afford to provide this type of data. And then once we've done, we've, we've done all that, we provide the public an opportunity to provide feedback. So we have a feedback mechanism that's built into the interactive map that we will provide to the state. And that allows people to not only capture screenshots of disputed areas, but it also allows us to crowdsource intelligence on places that we need to go and validate. And then we create, we redraw the maps based on that, on that feedback. And then what we do in states where we're doing the state broadband map, we repeat this process every six months in order to keep the the map updated. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. So how many states are you, do you have maps active in? 
Um, so we are currently active in, I may be a little off in some states on when grants programs, but I know, I definitely know that we're active in Minnesota and uh-huh. Tennessee. We previously did um, the map in Texas, though, with the last one that we did at the end of the year, I believe, the last um, update. And then we are uh, Illinois, Iowa. We previously also worked in um, in Ohio. And under SBI, we actually did it in 12 states and one territory. Okay, previously, wow. Previously. So, um, you know, the states and the territories are also going to have an opportunity to challenge the the map that comes out of FCC later this year. Do you envision that connected nations maps are going to help some of those states do that? Absolutely. And actually, that is really wonderful news that uh, the FCC will now be releasing what's called the broadband serviceable location fabric with yeah. the, 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 the FCC <laughs> yeah. loves to the to have the longest names and longest acronyms for things uh, just to yeah. make us sound stupid when we try to say right. them out loud so right. go ahead I think, gonna, I think the going is going to be the fabric the fabric works I like it the fabric it's cool so, so yeah I, we will continue to provide and this is some of the details that states will have to work through in the next year as they develop their five-year action plan um, is that they have to determine what processes they want to implement for themselves. So Mm -hmm. certainly um, Connected Nation will continue to be a resource that's available to help states. And we currently already help states such as Minnesota and Tennessee, which they use the maps that we provide to validate for their uh, grant programs already. So they're got it. They're statewide grant yes. programs. Yes. So okay. they, they already use those to make sure they understand the un, unserved and underserved areas and also to validate deployment when infrastructure is deployed. Got it. Okay. Really cool. Um, let's talk a little bit about the infrastructure law. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the, the federal funding for broadband, $65 billion, of course, uh, the biggest chunk of that is the $42.45 billion Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program, also known as BEAD. Um, just showing off that I remembered all of the words in <laughs> BEAD. <laughs> At least that one is easy to say BEAD, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like we were talking about before, Connected Nation has been uh, doing all of the all of the pieces of uh, f- attending to the digital divide for a long time. So I'd love your perspective on the programs that ended up uh, a part of this broadband legislation um, and and particularly the rules that came out of the NTIA last month. Um, From your work at Connected Nation, are you optimistic about um, where we landed policy-wise? And is there anything in particular that stands out to you as particularly good or or even particularly worrisome uh, with policy language? I'm actually very excited about... um, the $65 billion broadband fund. <laughs> I think I think one thing that makes it very important and stand out from previous programs is that it not only addresses infrastructure issues, right? It also mm-hmm. prioritizes adoption and it also prioritizes and really emphasizes equal access and digital equity. And this is something that, I mean, you talked about BEAD, BEAT is an infrastructure-based program, but yet it is broadband equity access and deployment. So mm-hmm. I, that that's really great that they're bridging that gap between, you know, 
the issue of the digital divide just being an infrastructure problem. So, and as a matter of fact, with the recent um, uh, notices or funding opportunities, they made clear and strongly recommended that the Digital Equity Act activities be aligned, strongly aligned with the BID program, which means that uh, we, you know, states should not just focus on one thing. They need to have a, a very global uh, approach to how they tackle these issues. So that's that's really great. Another thing that I appreciate very much is the Affordable Connectivity Program, which is, you know, allowing um, people that, from low-income communities and people that qualify for the Lifeline program and other government services to be able to afford and get broadband connectivity at a $30 discount and $75 discount on tribal lands. And I think that's really important and with that people will be able to afford because affordability, as you, as you may know, has been one of the leading barriers to adoption. And so I think that's great that this program really put some funding in order to make to to deal with the affordability issue. I also appreciate the focus and emphasis on states, both from BEAD and the Digital Equity Act, on prioritizing planning. You know, they both programs require five-year plans, which means that these these decisions have to be made thoughtfully on where the money is going. And so I think just taking that year to do that planning is going to be critical in order for us to actually establish goals, state level goals, and then be able to measure um, what's and, and determine what success look like and track what that success will look like. So I, I am a big advocate for, for planning and not quite simply just sending money and asking people to do it in terms of just the comprehensiveness of it all, yeah. uh, the empowering of states and the ability to have a plan that is that has some measurable metrics. Got it. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you mentioned the intersection of the Digital Equity Act with, with BEAD. Um, I wonder if we could spend just a, a few more moments talking about the Digital Equity Act and what it's going to do that is, you know, wouldn't have been done on its own if we just had the BEAD program, for example. Why is that piece of legislation so crucial? Well, so the Digital Equity Act, well, for one, it promotes digital equity. <laughs> and that is just you, you know, don't say <laughs> and that is defined as that is creating opportunities for everyone to participate in this mm-hmm. global economy and that's mm-hmm. big but it also is supports digital inclusion activities so in their plan the states are able to gather information from everybody they're 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 required to do a needs assessment and what that means is they have to um, do maybe a survey, for example, a statewide survey that identifies what the barriers are in that state. Because oftentimes when it comes to the digital divide, it doesn't always look the same from one state to the other, one community to the other. Mm-hmm. So it's requiring the states to really understand what that looks like, not only what it looks like, but it what it looks like for the various populations that we often see on the wrong side of the digital divide, that is rural populations, low-income households, 
uh, ethnic minorities and uh, veterans and and uh, older adults and the, the various groups that are actually mentioned in the Digital Equity Act. So they have to be informed as far as what are the needs there. The second thing they have to do is they have to do an, uh, an asset inventory. And what that means is that they have to figure out who across the state is out there doing the work. Mm-hmm. So by putting all that together, then we get an understanding of what is really going on and what needs to be funded and where are the gaps and that sort of thing. And so the third thing is they have to have a outreach and engagement plan. How are you going to engage everybody in the community, particularly the covered populations that tend, again, to be left behind. And then once they have this plan, they can therefore use, once this plan is approved by the uh, by the NTIA, they can then apply for capacity money, which will amount to about roughly $30 million on average per state over five years. And this money will be used to implement that plan, whether it is awarding subgrants to other entities in that state to do the work, or whether it is them doing some capacity building work and you know hiring staff to help regions and communities do the work. And so this is real tangible things that the state will be able to do when it comes to things like workforce development, digital skills training, um, cybersecurity and um, the list of the things that really make people use the internet uh, effectively. Plus they can use it for promoting uh, the uh, affordable connectivity program and other things that really are critical to being successful with this infrastructure money. Yeah, yeah, you really help illuminate what a crucial piece of legislation that is. So thank you very much. how is Connected Nation helping states prepare uh, to start drawing up their plans to apply for all of this funding? I imagine you're getting a lot of questions and anxious broadband directors reaching out uh, for help. Uh, so what are you hearing? Well, so I'd say in short, we're helping helping them help make, make sense of all this. Because, because the, the infrastructure bills, not the only funding they're faced with, right? Right. They are faced with other funding, such as the Capital Projects Fund, and and they're now being tasked with, you know, up if they didn't have a state broadband office, they have the task of making that bigger to accommodate the work they have to do. Mm-hmm. And so we're what we're doing is we're helping them make sense of it. We're helping them break it down into its pieces and understanding uh, what they need to do. They have some pretty um, near-term deadlines. Uh, for example, the Digital Equity Act, the deadline for applying for planning grants is July. July mm-hmm. It's July 12th. And then shortly thereafter is the deadline for the letter of intent for BEAD. And so and those, and, uh, those uh, early applications, particularly the Digital Equity Act, requires them to have a really great understanding of what they're going to spend the next year doing in terms of planning. And so that can be a little overwhelming. And so what we're doing is as a subject matter expert, we're answering their phone calls. We're getting ready to share a a playbook on uh, applying for the 
digital equity planning grant program. And so we're trying to be really a support system and, and sort of help them navigate all this information that's coming at them at a, a thousand miles an hour. Wow. Um, it feels to me like the uh, NTIA just chose to ruin everybody's summer if you work in broadband. <laughs> that's, maybe that's been the goal all along. Um, last question for you, and then I'll let you get back to doing all of that because uh, that's important. Um, you know, you mentioned Lifeline, you mentioned the Affordable Connectivity Program. Obviously, we're going to be spending billions of dollars building out new broadband networks to get everybody connected, ideally. Um what further legislation or policies or funding is needed to sustain and support all of uh, this work that we're doing to get everybody connected and to ensure that people can continue to afford broadband service after you know the funding for ACP runs out, for example? Actually, that you you kind of pointed out the my first <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that is concerning the funding for affordable connectivity. Don't let it run out. Is that? Yes. It has a finite amount of money and it will mm -hmm. run out. And so I think we have to have some legislation or policy that funds it. it although we know that the, uh, the bill made it permanent, the money was very specific and it doesn't speak to how that money, the program will be funded. Right. So if we can have clarity on that, sooner than later, then that will be good. And part of it may include reforming Lifeline. Mm -hmm. As you know, Lifeline is the one that provides a $9.95 uh, uh, subsidy um, for connectivity and for telephone. And obviously with ACP, it doesn't make sense for it to remain the same. So how do we update that program to make it relevant um, to where we are today. And so I think that's that's pretty urgent that they do that. And, and it's a, that's something the FCC is working on currently. Exactly. Yeah, okay, go that's, on. And, that, that, and they need to get that done. Another thing that bothers me, and this is like my pet peeve, and exactly. it's not necessarily a legis legislative issue or policy, but it's the, I'm sure you've heard this mentioned over again, future-proofing, future-proofing. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. like a buzzword. I wish we could stop with that buzzword. Can't future-proof technology. <laughs> you can't future-proof. And I, I, I hear it over and over again. And I say, can we legislate that? Well, <laughs> I'm sure you uh, you know that's a fun lobbying term more than it is a, a reality. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's not a reality. And, and this, it just goes back to the definition of a digital divide. Yeah. That's a, that's a moving thing. It's not like a finite, you, you know. We have to redefine the digital divide because the technology two years from now could be different. And we yeah. could require more speed, higher speeds. We could require, we don't know. And so when you tell people that you're future-proofed, you're telling them that you're going to fix the problem and be done and go home. No. <laughs> <laughs> We're telling the truth on this podcast, okay? We're telling the truth. You've got to review it. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you look at the timeline for when smartphones came and all that it's yeah. not that long ago. It's right. not a long time ago. And now we're talking 
no child should have a device, should not have access to a device at home. And yet right. years ago, that was perfectly fine. <laughs> right. I mean, I will just to, to piggyback on what you're saying, future-proof is really, you know, code for fiber, fiber infrastructure should be everywhere. And that leaves out, you know, wireless infrastructure. The NOFO specifically leaves out um, unlicensed spectrum, which I think is causing some consternation in the wireless industry. Are you yeah. concerned that that focus on fiber is going to leave more people on the other side of the digital divide then? The re, um, I mean, the reality, I still think emphasizing fiber is great, but there's also some realities that we have to deal with and that is it going to be cost effective, not only to deploy to certain very remote areas, or is it going to be practical? Mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. not, not efficient because the whole idea of public funding is that we're trying to bridge that gap, but we have to also deal with some hardships that we are going to have to consider the role of other technologies. So, um, you know, technology neutral is not always a bad thing. Right. <laughs> bad thing. Um, so I, I leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Points taken. Points very well taken. Future proof is a lie. Uh, got it. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> And not in the fiber way. I'm just saying. I mean, the idea that anyone's trying to predict the future in uh, 2022 after all we've been through is just silly anyway. The last two years taught us a lot about how life can change so quickly. I mean, exactly. My, my biggest example is tele, uh, telehealth. We um, were funded by in Michigan to do a telehealth study prior to COVID. And so we did the study and we had our fundings. We, we did it in five counties. And part of our finding was that people weren't really, you know, excited about telehealth. And so we talked about what are the barriers to telehealth. And so some of our recommendations were outreach and awareness about telehealth and more work to be done. So we were funded to do this outreach and awareness for telehealth. I kid you not. We released this report in February 2020, <laughs> and we were we were scheduled to do a follow up report of what it, what does what's the impact of the outreach and awareness. We were supposed to do some events to really just promote the idea, and so we didn't. Needless to say, we had to redo our stuff, and all of a sudden, all the policy changes that were in the report as um, as a challenge were no longer challenges, you know, you yeah. see, and a lot of different entities were just sort of like, okay, we're going to change that. These were, oh no, we can't oh my God. do telehealth across, across, um, across states. We can't right. do that. Right. Or we can't build this and this to mitigate. <laughs> and then, yeah, no, we can. Yeah, no, that's a great example. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, well, Thank you so much, Heather. I really enjoyed talking to you and I hope that Thank you'll come you back so and, and keep us posted on all the great work you all are doing. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I look forward to working with you. Thank you for all the great work that you all are doing to, to keep the world well informed. We're trying our best. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Have a good day.
Thank you again, Heather, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landreau, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.